false worship, Scripture tells us, is when we worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. So the distinction right at the very beginning between the creator and the creature lays the foundation for the worship of God. And it, and it gives us, you know, a definition of, of true worship. Welcome to Mid-America Reform Seminary's Roundtable Podcast, a broadcast where the faculty of Mid-America discuss everything from Reformed theology, cultural issues, and all things seminary. You're listening to episode 103, and I'm Jared Lucchabor. Joining me on campus for our next few episodes are Reverend Andrew Compton and Dr. Glenn Clary, pastor of Providence Presbyterian Church in Pflugerville, Texas, and adjunct professor of pastoral studies here at Mid-America Reform Seminary. They're here to talk about worship, beginning with some biblical and theological considerations. Welcome to Roundtable. I am Andrew Compton, Associate Professor of Old Testament here at Mid-America Reform Seminary. I'm joined with some colleagues, um, Professor Mark Beach. He uh, will be joining in in some future episodes as Professor of Ministerial and Doctrinal Studies, but also we are really excited to have Dr. Glenn Clary uh, join us. Glenn, thanks for coming in. Hey, you're welcome. I'm glad to be here. Looking forward to our conversation today. We've uh, really been thankful to have Glenn not only join us for this, but uh, but chiefly he's joining us uh, because he's he's come and he's taught our liturgics class here at Mid-America, first year uh, introduction to worship, not merely the pragmatics of it, although there there certainly is that, that you know, we want to teach our students how not to sort of, you know, um, trip over the pulpit when they walk up, uh, but but even more importantly, those those biblical and theological principles that inform the kind of things they're doing. So Glenn came uh, this past spring, I think you were here, right? And you uh, you uh, taught our students and heard, uh, we've had um, just great conversations overheard throughout the, uh, the seminary uh, about uh, Glenn's lecture. So we're really glad to have you here, Glenn. Well, we're starting off... Um, discussing worship, but but just looking at some of these biblical uh, kinds of underpinnings, right? What What is it that uh, we have in Scripture beyond, right, beyond just the command to praise God? Certainly there's that. That's ubiquitous. We we have Scripture calling us to praise, calling us to worship. Um, there's these commands to not neglect assembling together, but that's not merely why we worship. There's a, there's a bigger kind of orienting picture uh, in Scripture that is, that is, causing us to sort of um, overflow uh, in worship. Indeed, that's, that's our purpose. And that's, that's probably worth our time, just even exploring that, that big picture storyline. Well, um, yes, I think, I think it is helpful to look at, you know, how, uh, you know, what does Scripture say uh, regarding the worship of God from a bird's eye view? You know, what is the big picture uh, from Genesis to Revelation? And, you know, one of the things um, that we see come into view right at the very beginning of Scripture in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, is this distinction between the creator and the creature. And in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So there's God, the creator, and then everything else is creature. And uh, that really is the foundation for true worship. Um, you know, false worship, Scripture tells us, is when we worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. So the distinction right at the very beginning between the creator and the creature lays the foundation for the worship of God. And it, and it gives us, you know, a definition of, of true worship. Worship is, you know, directed to God and worship. We ascribe to him glory and honor, the glory that is due his name. 
And we owe him uh, that because we are his creatures. And, you know, God created the heavens and the earth in the beginning. He's creating these realms, which I think Genesis 1-1, you know, brings into view uh, two realms in particular, the invisible realm and the visible realm. And I think one verse that is helpful, that is an inspired commentary on Genesis 1-1 is what Paul says in Colossians, you know, chapter 1, verse 15. Right. Uh, right. That God created, you know, all things visible and invisible, that God created the heavens and the earth visible and invisible. So the creation of the heavens and the earth in Genesis 1-1 is referring to the creation of those two realms, the invisible realm of heaven. It's invisible to us presently. It's obviously visible to God and the inhabitants of heaven, but it's presently veiled from us, so invisible to us. Although sometimes we do. Visible realm. Sorry, we, we do find sometimes that where even that invisible realm does seem to be, the curtains peeled back in a few places. Think of, uh, oh, what is it, in Second Kings, um, you know, the, the we have moments like that where, where there do, does seem to be even glimpses into that. Yes, like certainly, this, yes. Uh, you know, uh, was it Elisha's servant uh, <laughs> who saw, you know, the mountains full of the hosts, yeah, the heavenly cool. host, when God opened his eyes. Or we might think of, you know, when Jesus was baptized, heaven was open. Yeah. Or Stephen in the book of Acts, chapter 7, he saw heaven opened and Christ, mm-hmm. you know, standing at the right hand of the Father. Or in the book of Revelation, you know, John is taken through, uh, you know, this door that stood open in heaven. So there are various places in Scripture where you see, uh, as you put it, the curtain is being pulled back. And I think that's a really helpful way of putting it because— um, you know, the firmament that God creates in Genesis chapter 1 functions like a boundary, a veil, a curtain that separates the invisible realm from the visible realm. And at, in the consummation, you know, that firmament uh, will be rolled up like a scroll, the book hmm. of Revelation says. And so the invisible realm and the visible realms will become one in the consummation. That uh, does seem... But Go ahead. I was going to even even add on to uh, to that. It it seems too even within Genesis one there is that distinction being made between the heavens Hashemayim of verse one, and then the the Rakia heavens the Rakia Shemayim without the definite article in the following verses. So already there that there does seem to be in verse one this sense that there are these these two realms. There's the invisible invisible place of God's throne room, the visible place of our of where we are, um, which gets developed into its own heavens. Uh, you know, it, it has its own models, as it, as it were, uh, of the sky and, and space and such. But but already in Genesis one, um, yeah, it's not it's not Paul and Colossians sort of using a, a fanciful exegesis. There, it does seem built right into the into the grammar and wording of chapter one, Genesis. Yes, I, I agree. And, and then that too, you know, what you just mentioned, the rakia being called heaven, God called the expanse or the firmament heaven, brings into view another principle that you see in Genesis 1, and that's the replication principle, that the visible realm is a replica of the invisible realm. And I think there's another distinction uh, that comes into view very early on in Scripture, and that is the distinction between the common and the holy. Hmm. You know, heaven is the holy realm. This invisible heaven is the holy realm. And earth is the common realm. Now, you see later in Scripture that there are holy places on earth, but that's the place where heaven and earth meets. You know, the Garden of Eden was the first holy realm, as uh, you know, we'll see in a little bit, Lord willing, uh, because it becomes 
the gate of heaven. You know, it's the doorway that leads into heaven. It's the place where heaven and earth earth meet, and then later it would be the tabernacle, and then later the temple, and so on. But the distinction between the invisible realm and the visible realm is also the distinction between the holy and the common. And heaven is the holy realm because it is filled with the glory spirit of God. Heaven is a temple. It is God's temple palace where God has set up his throne uh, from the beginning. And it is filled with angels who worship God without ceasing. So heaven's this holy realm. It is also a temple where God is worshipped by his heavenly creatures and has been worshipped by his heavenly creatures from the very beginning, and they worship him day and night, as Revelation 4 puts it, or without ceasing, they worship him. And you see examples of this in the book of Isaiah chapter 6, for example, and also Revelation chapter 4. But on Isaiah chapter 6, now the prophet Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up, sitting upon his throne, and the train of his robe filled his temple. So Isaiah saw the Lord's throne in heaven, and it is a heavenly temple. And he saw, you know, the angels, the seraphim singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And so they're worshiping him in the heavenly temple. So one thing I think uh, um, that's important to point out here, Andrew, when it comes to worship is when God created the invisible heaven, he created a place of worship and he filled it with worshipers. And then when he created man in his own image, after his own likeness, there's another example of that replication principle. The worship that God instituted on earth was patterned after his worship in heaven. So we are to worship on earth as God is worshiped in heaven. And that's been the pattern ever since uh, ever, ever since the beginning from Genesis uh, chapter one. Man who's created in the image of God, um, that language of man being the image of God brings into view all kinds of things, including this. Uh, man is a religious creature. He is inherently uh, religious. Uh, he is homo liturgicus, as some people have put it, right? He's, he's a worshiping creature, and he is in a religious fellowship with God from the very beginning. Uh, he's given uh, a mandate. He has a royal office and a royal mandate to exercise dominion. So he's a kingly figure, but he's also a priestly figure, and he's given a priestly mandate, too, as we see in Genesis uh, chapter 2, and he's placed in a holy realm, which is the Garden of Eden. But not only is he created for worship and in a religious uh, you know, bond of fellowship and communion with God from the very beginning, but he is created to advance from the visible realm to the invisible realm. He's created to advance from one state of glory, the state of innocence, into another, you know, higher state of glory, the realm of glory. And particularly, uh, he's supposed to advance, you know, through the firmament as the first high priest created and placed in this holy realm. You know, he is, he is directed upwards toward uh, the state of the consummate state of glory. And how is he going to get there? Well, he's going to get there by passing through the firmament, the veil, and entering into the ultimate and permanent holy of holies of God, which is which is heaven itself. You know, what Christ attains, of course, as the second Adam is what, you know, the first Adam would have attained uh, had he been obedient as as God helping us, you know, maybe we'll we'll see in just a minute. But what was it that Christ attained? You know, after making purification for sins, Hebrews 1 says he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Well, that was Adam's destiny, to sit down at the right hand of the majesty on high. 
in the realm of glory. And Adam was given um, Adam was given the pathway in order to advance into that state of glory. And that path was God gave to him uh, the covenant of works. Now, God entered into a relationship with him and gave him um, the covenant of works. And in that covenant, he was promised to advance from his original state to a higher state and to uh, receive you know, eternal life in the realm of glory. Uh, but he was also given terms that he had to fulfill in order to attain that. And those terms were obedience, right? He had to obey God perfectly in order to advance. And so right at the very beginning in Genesis chapter one, you see the Bible laying a foundation for worship, a biblical theology of worship that will develop, you know, throughout scripture, reach its consummate, um, you know, climactic fulfillment with the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ as the new Adam. And ultimately with, you know, the second coming of Christ and the consummation of his kingdom uh, at the end of the world. But in the beginning, in Genesis chapter one, you know, God makes these realms of worship. He creates worshipers, the rational creatures of heaven, the heavenly beings, and then, you know, Adam and Eve on earth. He puts Adam in a holy realm. He gives him a holy mandate because he has a holy office. He's the priest. His holy mandate is to guard the sanctity of the garden. God placed him in the Garden of Eden and told him, uh, you know, to cultivate it, but also to guard it. Uh, which is the same term that is used uh, later in the in the Pentateuch for the priests guarding the sanctuary. Adam uh-huh. is to guard the sanctuary of Eden from defilement. Yeah, it's no uh, accident that that the the commission. Unfortunately, our, our translations often say to to keep and tend and and, and focus on that sort of our um, you know agricultural imagery. Whereas Avad and Shamar are paired up in in Numbers chapter three, those two, in speaking of the Levites and their task. And and it's very redundant there in Numbers three. It's it's clearly, it's no accident that that Adam is uh, is cast in these terms. And and no no accident that he's cast very much in this priestly uh, type of of, um, of form as well. I mean, like like you say, he's created for this liturgical, for this sacred task of of worship. I'm even struck, I um, was... Uh, working through Psalm 148 recently, preaching through it, and, and here's this um, interesting inter- intermingling in the first half of Psalm 148 of visible uh, creation, heavenly creation entities and invisible entities that are intermingled. You know, it kind of mm-hmm. touches in on on that that connection, that relationship between the invisible and visible realm. But I love how in all those instructions, praise, 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 whether it's angels, whether it's the the um the the host whether it's the sun and the moon um the this motive in verse 5 let them praise the name of the lord why for he commanded and they were created i mean the very virtue of creating them created yes. them as liturgical creatures and indeed as we see adam was created as the sort of uh paradigm worshipper you know the the priest that boundary crosser uh, who would enter into the the holy place it really does then orient us to this is part of who we are i mean we are we are beings designed to render worship uh, unto god to to give glory to him and to to reflect his glory back up to him uh in in our doxology and in our worship yes very good you know psalm 148 i just absolutely love that psalm um but you know psalm 148 gives us a picture of the worship of god 
in the state of consummation, yeah. right? In, in the consummate state, mm-hmm. when all creation, um, all creation glorifies God, and that's you know what that's the purpose of creation. You know, the heavens declare the glory of God; the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Psalm nineteen one. Mm-hmm. Everything mm-hmm. that God created, everything without exception, has a doxological aim and a doxological purpose, and that is to glorify God. And that's true of, you know, um, rational creatures and irrational creatures. It's true of the sun, the moon, the stars, and everything. Everything is created for God's glory. Everything displays God's glory. And, you know, from the very beginning, and this is uh, something I think it's very important in Reformed theology, in particular when it comes to Reformed biblical theology and the tradition of Gerhardus Voss, and, and that's this, you know, before redemption, before the fall and before man's need of redemption and before the revelation of God's plan of redemption in Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve, um, humanity and creation had an eschatological aim, right? It was oriented toward the consummation. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, eschatology precedes soteriology. It comes, uh, comes before soteriology. And of course, when soteriology comes, God's plan of salvation is revealed. It is for the purpose of achieving that eschatological end that was already revealed from the beginning. Yeah, I should but even... Adam's role uh, is far more than just a you know a gardener, a farmer, <laughs> as you said. You know, he's he's got a royal uh, office and mandate, and a priestly office and mandate, and you know his role as the the head of the covenant of works, right? The federal head is to bring all of creation into its consummate state. It's uh, the final state, the state of glory. And that's very much tied up with, with the worship uh, of God's people, you know, from, from the beginning. Maybe one other thing in. here to point out, Andrew, which you've kind of passed over, is that, um, you know, the Garden of Eden was located on a mountain. Eden, mm. Eden was a mountain, uh, and, you know, People don't often think about Eden that way. Right. But scripture refers to it as a mountain, you know, specifically uh, Ezekiel chapter 28 right. uh, refers to it as, you know, the, the garden of God and also God's holy mountain, which, of course, is the same language that's used later for you know, Mount Zion. But um, Eden is a holy realm. Adam is. Adam is the high priest of this holy realm, and I think Ezekiel 28 is really, it really makes it clear. I think the figure that's being described, in my opinion, in Ezekiel 28 is, the, is Adam. Um, and the nine gems, for example, that are mentioned in Ezekiel 28 when it's talking about the precious stones, the gems, those correspond to the gems uh, of the high priest on his ephod. I know there are only nine of them in Ezekiel 28, but the high priest had 12. But if you look in the LXX, the Septuagint, all 12 stones are listed there. Um, so one of the rows, it looks like to me, was dropped out mm. of the Masoretic text, probably on accident. But uh, that row of three gems is included in the in the Septuagint, and they correspond exactly to the gemstones in the high priest ephod. So the, the figure in Ezekiel 28 is, the, is a high priestly figure, and I think that that's Adam. So that later, you know, when you get to the tabernacle era and the temple era, the high priest who serves in the tabernacle and temple is a new Adam figure. And he is, you know, carrying out a work that uh, will fulfill 
the terms of the covenant that God made with Adam in the beginning. It will also, you know, it will also bring about uh, redemption for those who are who are fallen creatures in a typological mode. But Christ ultimately is is the high priest, right? They they all are types of Christ, pointing forward uh, to Christ, who is the second Adam, uh, the eschatological Adam. Join us next time as Reverend Compton and Dr. Clary revisit this biblical theology of worship, particularly as they ponder the question, what is going on on a cosmic spiritual level when we gather for corporate worship on the Lord's Day? For more episodes, you can find us on our website at midamerica.edu slash podcasts. And wherever you listen to your favorite shows, be sure to search for and subscribe to Mid-America Reformed Seminary's Roundtable. I'm Jared Luchibor. Till next time.